It's Tuesday, May 16th, 2017, and you're listening to episode 443 of Through the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 45 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor, and we've been drinking. Yep, and that's also <laughs> all you get is Dan and Brodor drinking because Chad is busy. He's got a house move he's going through right now. He's moving to another part of town. He's not leaving us. He's just moving to another part of town. So he's dealing with that, and Wayne has some flimsy excuse. Blowing dudes? Well, he's out of wake, so <laughs> close. <laughs> Last time I blew a dude, it was awake. <laughs> Okay, so sure, yeah. Wayne is Wayne is awake. So. The Bowie funeral homes. They they condone this behavior. So what they've built their marketing yeah. model on. <laughs> they won't bring them back. But why not? Blow a dude. The dead don't judge. Oh my goodness gracious. So this is, let's just take this completely off the rails before we get to our gaming topic here. So earlier today, I decided that I was going to have uh, Narl spoof a trend of humor on social media. And, and fortunately, in most cases, this is humor. Yes, I do recognize there are the holes of the extreme, but for the most part, this is humor. You know, with the whole Hitler did nothing wrong thing or whatever. And so I had Narl post, Blondie did nothing wrong. and. <laughs> For anyone who's not familiar, Blondie was the name of Hitler's dog, his German Shepherd. And so I got curious, like, whatever happened to Blondie? I, you know, the dog didn't do, I mean, all jokes aside, the dog didn't do anything wrong. It was just a house pet. So I was curious, whatever happened to Blondie? And I, I came to find out some pretty bizarre things because I didn't realize how many pets were in that bunker as the Soviets were advancing on Berlin. And apparently what ended up happening was Hitler had the cyanide pill from Himmler, but because Himmler tried to switch sides, he didn't believe him. He thought it was just a sedative pill. And apparently to test it or prove it or something, he gave it to Blondie and it really was cyanide and Blondie, the the German shepherd died. And several of the people that were in the bunker that survived, including Hitler's dog handler and his dog trainer, who is still alive today, by the way, said that more people were upset by the death of the dog than by Eva Braun's suicide, which I guess tells you something about the uh, moral and human qualities of these individuals, of how likable they were even to each other. The thing that was interesting to me about that story is not just the death of Blondie, but the fact that they shot Hitler's other dogs so that they would not be raped by the Russians. Yeah, they did. I I mean, I don't know about the rape by the Russians part. That's a joke, I hope. But they didn't want the other dogs falling into the hands of the Russians. And so apparently there's like a dachshund, and then Blondie had one or more puppies, and they ended up taking them out to a garden and shooting them all. Despite the fact that, I mean, it's... (laughs) Welcome to the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. How do you, how do you top the Holocaust? Like, hey, let's throw some dead dogs on top of it. You know, why not? It's just, <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. So, all right. So, Brodor. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> a couple episodes back, 
we talked about the pacing or the lack of combat in certain games. And you said it was something that people in your current game were complaining about. Whereas for me, it was a little bit more academic because it's a complaint I've received in past games. But at the time of that recording, I wasn't even running a game. Now I am with the Skies of Glass game. But I'm curious to hear a follow-up on that because you've had a game since then. So one of my players in that particular D&D group actually listens to the show regularly. We just played D&D this past Sunday. During the day while I was doing my game prep, this particular player, my buddy DJ, actually texted me and he said, Hey, I'm listening to the episode right now. When he showed up before we started the game, he said, hey, the analysis that the other hosts gave was absolutely correct. That one, we're playing D&D and everything on my character sheet really is geared toward fighting. But the other thing is, is that we in the real world, it has literally been several months since we've had a combat encounter. And not that we're not enjoying the game, but boy, I just. My barbarian really wants to hit somebody with his, you know, magic club. So what's your friend's name? DJ. All right, DJ. Let me save you some time in the future. You don't have to say fear the boot was correct. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Just go ahead and skip to the next point. It's like leading off a story with there's water in the ocean and therefore just skip to the next point. (laughs) Well, I think that what he was saying is, is that the other hosts on the show were correct and that I was necessarily wrong in not providing them with a combat. And I don't think that's what DJ was saying, but he was saying that the analysis that, dude, it's been a while, we're playing D&D, let's fight, right? So I provided my players with that fight. And during the episode, I joked that I don't want the orcs to attack the village arbitrarily and huzzah, orcs attack the village, let's defend the village against orcs. Then toward the end of the episode, I joked saying... I could literally justify orcs attacking the village. So that's precisely what happened. And without getting too much into a gaming story, orcs did in fact attack the town where the player characters reside. And so I flipped the ambush script as opposed to the PCs ambushing the NPCs. And yes, I know I've done nothing original here, but the NPCs attack the village, right? They attacked the town of however many, you know, few thousand people. And the player characters are asleep, they're unprepared, and they're divided because some of the players have residence inside the walls of said village, and some of the players have residence outside the walls of the village. So when the proverbial shit hits the fan, they have to decide what directions they're going to go. And what was exciting about it is, is that I was able to provide spotlight to each particular player in terms of both their interests in the world, but also their specific unique combat abilities. And at the end of the game, my nemesis player, this guy, Brent Goad, you know, Saturday night is for slamming bitches. <laughs> So Saturday night, (laughs) so because because Brent comes to the game with a very adversarial nature and that it is his mind versus my mind, right? It's his imagination and his ability to manipulate the rules versus mine. So you're telling me that somebody whose life motto is Saturday night is for (laughs) slamming bitches might have a somewhat adversarial (laughs) An offensive disposition. Yes. Uh, This I'm going to have to. This is right up there with trying to absorb the idea that Nazis might be evil to dogs as well as people. So, so I'm having to picture Nazis being evil and a guy who says that about women. 
being a bit of a douche. Well, but here's in here's one night. This, I mean, this let is me, a lot to pile. Let me take a step back from that for a moment. Ed is deep down inside, so he has this whole facade of this sort of cold uncaring womanizing you know blah 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 okay that's not who he is okay i mean he is the most decent noble honest person that i that one of the most that i encounter anyway but he's very adversarial about gaming because he he's very competitive about it okay and at the end of the game session he says you know he shakes my hand and of course he's got all this alpha male so he has to crush your hand when he shakes it and he says hey i just want you to know that was perfect. And and not the actual my running of the game session, but how I broke it down in terms of the particular enemies that fought each individual player character. Yeah. And because I flipped the script so much that each person was challenged by their particular element of the encounter. And so the element of the encounter that they fought was opposed to it didn't sync up with but opposed to their particular skill set so people's challenges were maximized in that encounter okay it, it was a lot of fun well, let me start this several points back with you doing something that i would at least off the top of my head be completely opposed to which is you know you're about to have orcs attack the village oh a lot of them a lot of orcs, <laughs> orcs everywhere right, right, right. i mean there were so many npcs getting cornholed in the street it was amazing <laughs> and you started <laughs> off with the party separate yeah if this was, separate asleep okay. by the way if this was <laughs> if it's me, like two o'clock in the morning if this was me and i knew i was going to have a plot point occur in the city whether it was orcs attacking the city or whatever it would be okay it doesn't matter i would have found some reason for the night before they're all together. Ah, them. That what? <laughs> well, this is what I want to explain because you know the Lord of the Manor calls them together. They get drunk, pass out. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. But I would come up with some reason for them to be together because nothing to me sucks more than having the party divided, both from a functional standpoint of they can't operate very well, but also from a metagame standpoint because of the fact that you've now got some portion of the player base bored thumb and ass. And again, I don't want to blow my own horn, but that was the theatrics of it is making each person's individual combat encounter encounters interesting, not only to them, but the theatrics of making it interesting to everybody else at the table. So that when memory's character is being shaken awake by one of her teaching assistants, for lack of a better term. So Memory's character, she's a wizard, and there are some other lower-level wizards that have moved to this particular, you know, across the sea, to this particular continent, to this colonial outpost, to learn from Memory's character as part of Memory's story, right? Okay. So Memory's character is asleep. She is shaken awake by one of her interns, for lack of a better term, shaken awake by this intern, you know, Aurelia, Aurelia, wake up, something's going on in the town, and then her head is cracked open by the war club of an orc, splattering gray matter, skull fragment in blood over Memory's bedsheets and her wall, and then Memory's character reacting by taking a scorching ray and dumping it into her highest level spell slot and incinerating this orc from the waist up. It was (laughs) brutal, right? And everybody at the table, you know, jaws are hitting floor. They're all freaked out. Right. That, what the hell's going on? This NPC that we love, that one of my one of my other PCs is romantically involved with, she's just f***ing dead. 
right? No apology, no explanation, just, hey, you wake up and your friend's dead. Okay. So let's let's pause right there because there is an interesting piece of advice that you gave wittingly or unwittingly. Yeah. Well, if it's me, it's unwitting. Okay. <laughs> Which is, despite the fact that the group was separated, and, and the obvious downside of that, whenever you separate the group, apart from the party, if they were balanced this way rules-wise, being questionably non-functional, is the fact that you have some portion of the player's board. And you got around that by adding a level of theatricality and desperation to the scene such that it's like a movie or TV show. It's interesting to passively consume. Even if you're not involved, even if yelling at the screen doesn't do anything, you still manage to keep their interest by just making the scene itself interesting. So I'm, I'm curious here, how quickly did you move the focus? Did you keep it on memory for a while, or did you bounce it pretty quickly? So it, it, it depended on the player. Right. Okay. It depended on the momentum of our individual interaction. Right. So if I have your eyes locked and I can feel that the other players of the table are paying attention to what we're doing, I would let it go on for a couple of minutes. But the moment that I felt indecision or analysis paralysis or any sort of lacking of engagement with that particular player, I just snapped to the next one and I just put my hand up indicating that I'll come back to you, and I would go to the next guy in the chat. Oh, okay. Advice point number two here. I don't even know what the topic is, but advice point number two, that's beautiful. Chad loves this, but he usually talks about it in terms of the end of a game. But in the middle of the game, sort of blue ball. Right. To to, to not complete. It's it's a cliffhanger, but it's not a cliffhanger in the sense of, I'll see you next month. Yeah, so It's a a momentary cliffhanger. Right, so 5th edition is one of the things, I mean, I've talked about it on the show, but not in particular detail. There are many things about 5th edition that I don't particularly care for. One of them is that demons cannot teleport to a site unseen at an immeasurable distance. They can only teleport 120 feet to a space that they can see. So... My friend DJ's character, Griswold, Griswold is running from his house. He had just, his house is on fire. It's burning down. He didn't even care, right? He had just killed several opposing native tribesmen called the Volsuni who had, you know, lit his house on fire and then were waiting for him to jump out the door or a window and surprise attack him. Well, he's a beast, right? So he just fucking crushes, kills these dozen men single-handedly. Now, granted, they're, you know, CR 1-8 or whatever, the point is, is Griswold is unarmored with his war club and his fucking underwear running toward the town because it's a blaze and alarms are sounding, people are screaming, and he's running toward the town. But then, as he's passing the king's enclave, tents outside the town, the sort of, uh, you know, temporary fortification that has been built by the, the visiting dignitaries and king, he realizes that they're under attack. So, even though he knows that his friends, his compatriots, are in the village and that the village is under attack, right? I'm going to go defend the king, right? Even though he is from, he's a native tribesman and the king is of the sort of the colonialist imperials that are slowly but surely taking over the land, right? So any which way, DJ's character, Griswold, just runs toward the king's enclave And as he's getting there, he sees orcs everywhere. He sees the King's Guard fighting people, soldiers fighting people, and a Merolith. Boom. Merolith CR-16. 
in Merrillith. And my wife knew a Merrillith's going to be there because, as my wife refers to it, my true love, uh, <laughs> the Merrillith, she's outside the king's tent, right? His domicile. And she uses her six arms to shred the side of his tent because it's fifth edition and she can't just f***ing teleport inside the tent because she can't see it. So she teleports outside the tent, <laughs> shreds the wall, right? I know, I know, Why I know. Why do you feel I, this restrained by... <laughs> I, I, look, it's your game. Yeah, you're right. Why you're, didn't you just have the freaking Meryl teleport? And you're, you're right. You're, I, I absolutely could have, should have, but I didn't. And part of the reason that I didn't is because Brent and I have an unspoken agreement that there are rules and we will abide by those rules because we are nemeses. Any which way. But, so, yeah, but the, the write-up of a monster is not a rule. I t- you're right. You, you look, you're right. You're right. Because it could, instead of a Merolith, it could be like a, I don't know, super planar Merolith. Well, I mean, in, in Pathfinder, it would be a Mer- it would be a Merolith fighter Blackguard. Okay. But this that's is neither why, here nor there. This is why, outside of the really super standard stuff, skeleton, orc, whatever, apart from the really, really hardcore generic fantasy trope monsters, I invent every monster I use. Every single monster so I no, use you're right, and that's doesn't a, come from the monster manual. But anyway. Because nobody knows their panic buttons. Nobody can argue with me about their capabilities. I made them up. You're right. I should have, could have went that way. However, because Was I, the Merrillith named Aisha? No. Okay. No, no, no. So what was Meryl's name? I, she she doesn't have a name because she's just when you watch the credits of the film, she's just Merylith, right? Okay, all right. So any which way, Merylith is outside the king's tent. Griswold just through through luck and circumstance and some great role playing. Griswold just gets there in time to attack the Merylith. So now eleventh level Griswold and CR sixteen Merylith are engaged in combat with one another, and it is amazing. So. Griswold is, he's in a terrible way. He's about, he's about to get killed. He is bound up, grappled in the tail of the Merolith. Um, and a, a barbarian of his level has the ability to, if he dies, he can make a DC 10 constitution check and be at one hit point, right? So the Merolith, you know, thinks that she's killed him, drops him to the ground. Grizz makes his saving throw, rolls open his eyes to see King Vorius III barrel outside the shredded wall of his tent with his magic Cassian blade and blaze into the Merolith. And so now Grizz is up and he's fighting the Merolith. The king is fighting the Merolith and they f***ing rout her. I mean, it's amazing. Any which way. It was a wonderful, wonderful encounter in terms of everybody had the opportunity to shine. Everybody had the opportunity to use their specific mechanical abilities. And nobody got killed. And everybody was afraid they were going to die. Did you get the party together at any point? So... How much of the game did they spend? The entire combat. The, the entire game session, once at the beginning of the game, we did some bookkeeping from the end of the previous game. Okay. We did some role-playing at the beginning of the game where everyone was together. Once the players separated and the orc, drow, demon raid happened on the town of Thiedholm, they never got together again. In fact, I went so extreme with the blue balls that once it was obvious that the that the raiders had been repelled and that the two drow anti-parties had escaped and the orcs had been contained and the Merolith was able to escape and avoid being killed, although my wife's character tried real, real hard. Not out of jealousy, but just out of good. Out of jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, okay, great. 
you know, I, I explained that we were done and they were like, well, what about the aftermath? I was like, well, you're just going to have to wait till the next game. So they don't know what NPCs are alive. They don't know the reason why this attack occurred, blah, blah, blah. So I was just like, it. you don't get to know. Eat a bag of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you spent how many hours? Four. Four hours. Well, so that's not fair. So we... Every, <laughs> I don't care if it's fair. I'm looking for accurate. <laughs> so we probably spent an hour doing bookkeeping and catching up with the previous game. So we probably had a three-hour intense combat with a 20-minute dinner break in there. And so then, let's say two and a half hours. Yeah, which is, is probably All right, accurate. All right, we'll round down here. So two and a half hours of spotlight bouncing. Yeah. Which, I got to say, on paper... I would tell you it was the worst idea any Game Master's ever had, yet you actually made it work. For me, it worked. To my players, it seemed to work. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to question them individually. Do you think it, was there a technique to it, or was it just one of those circumstance things where you could never do it again? It's like the cross-court shot in a basketball game where it, it looked great, and you're going to tell everybody you could do it again, but in truth, you couldn't. So I wouldn't try to do it again. And the reason why I wouldn't try to do it again, at least with this particular group, is that I've already done it, right? And so I think one of the reasons why it worked with this particular group and this particular encounter is because I had not done something like this yet in the game. And so because it was fresh and it was new and it was exciting, and because I had the benefit of going months without a combat encounter, they were so excited about a fight right? That they didn't care if they were the person throwing dice. So I think a lot of things in that situation worked to my advantage. So the tension of the lack of action, of that kind of action, right. combat, visceral action, you think helped keep their attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there, there in may lie an interesting point, which is we talk a lot about the pacing of the game, but there may be something to be said for the dosing of a game. And I mean that within the context of a campaign of if you look at the things that people want versus what they've been given, that the things you release in a limited dose may catch their attention in a way that it otherwise wouldn't. And so you can look at something like this combat where people are sitting on the sidelines, the party split up. There's all these things once again on paper, I would have to tell you are just horrible freaking ideas. But it worked because within the dosing of the game, it's like these people, you've not let them eat, and now all of a sudden you're making bacon and coffee. <laughs> and there's nobody that doesn't smell this. That's <laughs> two of my favorite things. <laughs> well, what was great is that during the encounter, two of the PCs, my friend Mike, his druid Scaldi, and my friend Brent, his multi-class bard warlock paladin, don't get me started on that. Brent's character and Mike's character are aware of the alarm and they're both running toward the front gate of the village, right? And they are the only two PCs who are actually able to link up. At one point, Arthur Stormwind, I've talked about Jason's character on the show way back when, he's also, he's donned his armor, he's running down the street and he's using magic to illuminate the street torches, street lights for lack of a better Okay. And he happens to see some, he sees a couple of cloaked figures down an adjacent alleyway that just happened to be illuminated at that time. And so him being the fucking stud that he is decides I'm not going to run toward the front gate, even though meta, I know Scaldi 
and Cato are there fighting the, this massive wave of orgs that are coming through. I'm going to go see what that is because in character, I don't know that they're drow, but out of character, I'm pretty sure that that's, those are drow, right? So I'm going to go check it out. So he goes, boom, there are four drow of a drow raiding party, anti-party, and their shadow mastiff, and he takes them on to a person. Now, I'm a firm believer in morale. And when any NPC... God bless you. Yeah. Right, right there. Right, any NPC that gets to the 50% hit point margin, then they're like, well, dude, this guy's going to fucking kill me. So either A, I need to try to stop this and parlay, or I need to run away. Fucking Arthur steps around the corner, stone skins himself, and is like, let's fight. Now, he's playing a cleric of uh, the god of war, this god Agathon, right? Okay. Who is n- this neutral god of war. So... Arthur Stormwind decides I'm going to stone skin and I'm going to fight these f***ing, these dark elves. And dude, he almost dies. I mean, I want to say he had single digit hit points at the end of the encounter, but through spells and every other circumstance of the encounter, he's able to fight them. He kills the Shadow Mastiff. He kills their, I don't know, CR whatever warlock. And then everybody else is in, you know, 50% or more damage that they've taken. So he rots the drow. He's got this some stupid spell whose name I don't remember, but there are these angels that surround him, right? And any enemy that starts with an X number of squares of him or feet of him starts their turn, takes 48 points of damage. And it just sucked, right? And it just grinds away at these drow until eventually one of them just casts darkness and they just fucking run. They're like, this guy's going to kill us. And so I didn't look at Jason's character sheet. I didn't know his hit points. I could just read on his face that he was in a bad way. But I was like, it, whatever. I don't care if I kill him, I kill him. Right? So... <laughs> Any which way, he fights these drow to a route. He stumbles his way out of the darkness and realizes that they ran away. It was amazing. And the whole, the rest of the group was just super excited. They're like, holy sh! you just soloed an encounter that was intended for all of us. And that may or may not be true. And I'm not going to correct them on that, right? I'm just going to let the legend be the legend and let yeah. him have his day. A perception is reality. Right. To a right, point. right. Perceptions of reality you walk away with, even if it's not the objective reality. So, so each character had, like I said, a moment that was important to them narratively, but also combat opportunity to shine. I mean, at one point, my wife's character, the wizard Aurelia, the abjurist, she is flying over the town, making a beeline because you can see the king's enclave of tents burning on the horizon, burning in the distance. And she's just, you know, flying like superwoman, just blazing a beeline, happens to see the Merlith and just rips into her with a scorching ray. It was amazing. It, It was so good. So why did you let somebody make a bard warlock paladin? So I am... Because there does come a point where I have to stop blaming the child and start blaming the parents. <laughs> so here's here's what it is. Brent has this concept for his character. Uh-huh. And mechanically, mixing and matching all of these classes and these low-level class abilities is what made sense for him, right? Now, that's narratively speaking mechanically speaking, I think that he went through because he's, he's highly intelligent, far more intelligent than I am. And he went through and he found if I take a plus B and C, I can do all of these neat little tricks that will be a thorn in the side and that will be irritating to the game master and mysterious to everybody else. And no one will understand what it is that I am trying to do, but 
on paper, it's all legit and makes sense. So I, I think that was just his own personal wank. Now, Brent, if you're listening, I know that that's not fair of me to say, but it was his own personal wank. <laughs> yeah, I'm just putting out there. I wouldn't have allowed it. But so here's so here's the thing. As a game master, yeah. just like I am in life, there are things that I care about that are very important to me. Okay. And there are things that I don't care. So what would the bridge too far have been? I don't know. I would have to see it. Okay. I know that's not a good answer to the question, but I would have to see. I would I would just have to go no, no, no. We're not doing that. <laughs> He's tried to do that with his backstory and when the party took the 2-year break and everybody had their 2 years out in the world to do their own thing, um he took some liberties where I had to say no, that's too far, but ultimately one of the things that I have had to learn as a game master is that the story that I have created, as much as I want it to be sacred and I want it to be my thing, it's actually our thing. And so I need to let the players take their liberties with their abilities and with their backstories and with their narrative so that they're as invested and having as much fun as I am. So it's just like managing personnel at a job. You may not be doing the specific task the way I would want the specific task be done. However, ultimately, all that's important is the result and that the task is being accomplished well and in an efficient fashion. So if Brent is getting to his fun the way he's getting into it and he's enjoying it and he's achieving fun, at some point, I need to step back and let him do it his way. That's a fair point. I'm an irritable person. And as a result, I'm an irritable GM. And so I think upon seeing that... I'm going to remember this for the actual play. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I I think my personal annoyance aside, which, by the way, would be... It's a big boulder to push aside, okay? This is Sisyphus rolling my annoyance aside. But even if I push that aside, I think what would bother me at a subconscious level is, what is he up to? Because when somebody no, comes, you're, you're right, and he's up to something. Because when somebody comes to the table with a request, they can't play something normal. They got to play something weird. There's something else going on. Well, here's here's what it is. So Cato Martalis um, or Zolkalan, his alternate personality, his alter ego. So one of the things that wait, wait, time out. He's like a superhero. <laughs> yes. So any which way. Brent's character, mechanically, what he wanted to do is he wanted to make somebody who was very, very useful in terms of buffing and aiding the party. Okay. Which buffs aren't as big a deal in 5th edition. They're not as prevalent in 5th edition as they are in previous editions of the game. Okay. But there are some cool ways where you can aid and buff the party. And that's kind of the direction that he went. But then he also wanted to have some paladin levels and gain levels in paladin so that when he does engage in melee combat, he can burn those paladin spell levels to dump them into excess damage, right? So everything has a mechanical reason behind it. But ultimately his shtick is, and I'm far too inebriated to break it down for you, but he can legitimately do so because we've, as a group, audited his character. In 5th edition, a 20 AC is really, really good, right? Brent can get his AC in the mid to high 20s with certain tricks and abilities and spells. And that was his shtick, is that he's going to be the unkillable party buffer, right? And which, I don't care, man. Just go with God. Have fun, you know? So my PCs can't hit you. Fine. I don't care. 
Yeah, you can. You just got to yeah. stick with stuff that doesn't require an attack roll. Or- well, right. And that's and that's part of it. Like, he was so mad at me that the Merilith did not attack him. Right. Because he's like, she couldn't have hit my AC. And I'm like, whatever, man. She had a job to do and she did it. So, f*** you. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's bogged down with, like, this army of CR2 Origs. Right. <laughs> Any which way. It was, it was a ton of fun. So what's the epilogue on this? All right, and so the players had fun? Yes, okay. absolutely. I had a blast. I had a blast. My players had a really good time. Um, and you know that everybody had a good time when you can gauge their, you just, it's just simple body language, right? Like, I mean, I'm no, I'm no genius. Just looking around the table, seeing that not only people are invested in their particular slice of the pie, but they're invested in everybody else because I'm not there to defend my friend. I'm not there to fight with my allies and provide them with the buffs and the healing and the aid that they might need as the meat shield, right? Everybody's kind of on their own except for two of the PCs. But then everyone's so excited and energized that they're legitimately paying attention and focused on the other PCs at the table when it's their turn in the spotlight. But then when we're done and I tell them we're done and they're like, no, we need to X, Y, Z. And I'm like, no, no, you don't get to X, Y, Z. You don't get any answers. You don't get to go check on your girlfriend who's locked up in the brothel. We're done. Tune in next time. I'm trying to figure out what the takeaway advice is from this, because on the one hand, okay, given the success of this and given the fact that your players complained about the lack of action, it almost sounds like the advice going forward ought to be, well, come up with some better game balance, give them that action a little more often so they don't get to these points of being so blue balled. Right. But on the flip side, it sounds like that gave them such a thrill that it's kind of like, you know, I, you really didn't understand how much you appreciated food until I stopped feeding you dinner. Right. So maybe we need to skip a few meals. So what is, yeah. okay, I don't know there's any good advice here. But not good as in useful, but good as in morally good. Keep but them wanting. That's what I was going to yeah. say is maybe the, is the advice here is to not give them what they want. Well, I can't say that. Because I don't want to sound, I'm going to sound like a, like a manipulative jerk, right? I don't hear, I want you to tell the truth. <laughs> but on some level, the fact that they were wanting it so much that they lamented the fact to me uh-huh. that, you know, we want combat, you know, we've really had a great time with this, but we want to fight, we want to fight, we want to fight. It's like, baby, it's been a long time, we need to do this. I'm going to disappoint you with my performance, but it's been a really long time. <laughs> It's kind of your fault. Yeah, so. see, and that's why is what's the message that sends is we we need better balance or you appreciated it more because of the famine in between and so maybe we need more famine. And I mean that's such it, on the surface that sounds like such terrible advice, but maybe it is useful of if there's something you really want to turn into a big moment. That maybe they're, and it doesn't matter what it is. We could be talking about a type of role play, combat, anything, whatever game element it is. You know, seeing this technology, encountering this species, having a, a romance subplot, or whatever it is, that you can give it added significance by not presenting it for a really long period of time, even though you know your players want it. And that's so sadistic. But, if it works, 
I'm not sure I can't say it's not advice. Welcome to being an attractive woman. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I know I'm ready for the hay mail. Line it up. <laughs> I think between talking about Hitler's dogs and <laughs> Captain Misogyny, I think I think that ship has sailed. It it was a variety of factors, but the two being the distance between encounters, okay. right? And the fact that because there was such a great distance between encounters, everyone was just excited for everyone else at the table to have their moment. So when Griswold is scaling the walls, the palisades of the king's enclave to go in there and fight orcs and ultimately stand toe to toe with the Merolith, everyone was excited. Are your players generally excited about each other's characters? Because that's that's something that I noticed in some of the best games that we've had, I think there's this game, I don't think we've ever mentioned it before, but there was a D&D game that had Gnarl and Saren. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just... Oh, I think you've talked about that once I, or twice. Yeah, I, I, ask me about it later if, I, if you need to catch up on this. One of the things that was really cool about that game, and not just that game, we've had other games like this too, is people were not only excited about their characters, they were excited about each other's. They wanted to learn about and to see each other's characters shine and develop. And so you could have a scene that you weren't in, but you were interested in that story. You, you can see this a lot in like television dramas where they bounce between various characters or various sub-stories. And especially in a show that's maybe not all that well-written or maybe not perfectly written, there's always going to be characters or sub-stories you care about a lot more than others. There's going to be times where it's like, okay, I really don't give two craps about this person. Can we get back to what's going on with so-and-so over here? You know, a lot of TV shows are like that. And you know you've got a well-written show when anytime they bounce the camera, you care equally, or at least care to some degree, about the person they've shifted it to. I mean, if, if you had the control, you're almost not sure who you'd want them to shift it to next because you want to see all of these things develop. That's something that I've seen in some of our most successful games is people are not just invested in their character, which that, don't get me wrong, is the number one thing I think somebody needs for their enjoyment of the game, or at least well up there. But they tolerate the bouncing of the camera a little bit more because of the fact that there is an investment in seeing how the other characters shine, how they develop, who they are as people. And I'm curious, is that something that you just saw at this prior game, or is that something that's been true of this campaign, or maybe even any campaign with this group in general? I will admit that I have not done as strong a job as I could in encouraging that in my games and in balancing spotlight and balancing narrative to encourage that. I don't think you can. I mean... You can balance spotlight to encourage right. it, but you can't make me care about the character of the and, person to the left and, of me. And, and in my current game, I will say that the player character's relationships may not be in character as interpersonal sure. or involved as I would like them to be. But on the meta level, on the out of character level, I would argue that people are generally very interested in the successes and failures and outcomes right. for the other PCs at the table. Because I cared about Saren and Sir William's outcomes because of the work Pat and Wayne did. You know, Chad did nothing to impede that, but I cannot say Chad carried that. 
You know, it's not something that Chad did. And so in, in for that reason, I don't think I would put the burden on you there. If I, I mean, there are certainly things you can do to get in the way of it in terms of stealing spotlight or pacing the story very poorly or things like that. But to create a character that one is worth caring about to an outsider and two, that an outsider chooses to pay attention enough to, to actually care about. Well, one of the things that I have not done well in the current game is provide enough focus on memories. My wife's character, memory, her character, Aurelia. I have not provided enough focus on her character and my friend, Jason, his character, Arthur, I have not provided enough focus on his character. Meanwhile, Mike's character and Brent's character and DJ's character have gotten more focus. Now, with that said, one of the things that is, I think, important for players to understand, it's just like managing employees. The employee that is eager and enthusiastic and wants more work to do is the employee that you're going to focus on and nurture and work with and cultivate a good relationship with. Sure. So, and and my wife's a great gamer, but she's not as proactive as the other people at the table. And Jason is not as proactive as the other people at the table. So Mike and Brent and DJ come to me and they have things that they want to do with their character and they have goals and objectives that they want to complete in mind. And so we talk about that away from the game and it becomes a focus of the game. Now, my responsibility as the game master that I have been lacking in is that I have not been proactive enough with Jason and with memory to encourage their contributions and their desires. One of the things that I did with this game is that right before the everybody goes to bed, it's two o'clock in the morning and the raid occurs moment in the game. Jason's character had a moment with the high priest of his particular God in the town um, because there is a lot of suspicion that Jason's character is going native and that he is not loyal enough to the crown and that he is a bit too sympathetic for the natives. Right. And, you know, he is a priest of Agathon, the God of war first, but he is a Lithinian second. Right. And the suspicion has become that he's gone native and that he's too sympathetic. And so this high priest comes to him at his home. And one of Jason's problems as a character is that he's got a severe alcoholism. Right. Really a serious problem with alcohol abuse. Um, and when the high priest shows up to confront Jason, everybody's like, oh, where are the intervention banners? Right. <laughs> but it's not that the high priest doesn't really care about his alcohol abuse. It's about, look, we're here to subjugate these people. That's it, right? And so I need to know where your loyalties fall. And so we have this really tense moment of role-playing where Jason, out of character, when it's done, he's like, holy shit, I was scared. It's like, I, I was in trouble, right? I didn't know what was going on. I... I I wasn't sure what was going to happen with the high priest or if I was going to, if I, if I was going to get demoted or in trouble, I didn't know what was going on, but it was great because at that moment, Jason was really, really invested in the game and his energy level was, was higher and his buy-in was much, much greater, right? One of the things that I have not done well is that with Jason more and certainly with memory's character. So just if I'm doing my own sort of personal review, those are areas where I need to improve. Cool. I think it's, it was interesting to hear how this played out, you know, and I'm glad that it played out so well. 
Well, and it was honestly, it was selfish on my part because the higher level you get in D&D, the more complicated it is for the game master to make a challenging and interesting encounter. Sure. But also, I didn't just want to have another arbitrary fight where, okay, you're all together and the fight happens. Yay, we fight and everybody gets to blah, blah, blah and stack their bonuses and fight together as a party. I wanted to take an opportunity to change the script on how a combat encounter should occur. And I wanted to put everybody in their own little box and make them fend for themselves. Yeah, but it worked out. It did. It I did. mean, it's, once again, I don't know that I could give this as generic advice because in most situations, that's not going to work out. Right. But in this particular situation, it worked out. And so I don't know that there's anything selfish or foolish about that. If it worked, it worked. Well, and I think that if for me, the magic was I wanted to have the fun that I wanted to have, sure. but I wanted to make it fun for them, too. All right. Well, I think that's where we're going to end this one. So, Broder, thank you very much for the follow-up on that. That was thank you. Yeah. And as for the rest of you guys, you know the routine. Have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2017. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.